Check. Alrighty. Good morning. Y'all awake? Say it again. Good morning. It's good to be with you. I want to first and foremost thank uh, Byron and the leadership of the church. And uh, this is not an easy task, to, uh, number one, to get up and preach. Uh, but number two, to do it um, in the light of my dad passing away on Thursday evening. Um, he had dementia, Parkinson's disease, and uh, so we felt like we had lost him over time. But we saw God's gracious hand in that, is that we were so dependent on my dad that the Lord made us more dependent on himself. Um, and that was, we feel like that is a grace that God gave us. And um, on Thursday evening, about 8 o'clock that evening, uh, he took his last breath here on earth, and he took his first uh, in the presence of his creator, his maker, his savior. So we thank God for the legacy of my dad. Um, and number two, uh, we also need to be, as churches, we need to protect the pulpit. Uh, we don't just let anyone come up here and preach a sermon. Um, we need to protect what comes from the pulpit, what the people of God hear on a Sunday morning. So I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that Byron would ask me to come and to preach with only knowing me for about a year. He's never heard me preach, uh, so he doesn't know what's going to come from my mouth today, but I'm hoping that it'll be uh, what God wants us to hear. So at this point in time, I'm certain that most of you, if you've heard sermons since, you know, March, uh, that most introductions in the sermon that you've heard say something about 2020 being a difficult year, that things seem somewhat out of sorts, or just a year that has brought a lot of suffering, a lot of anxiety, a lot of turmoil, or you can fill in the blank with whatever adjective you want or need to describe 2020. But as we look to Advent, even though it feels different, or maybe a little less family around the table, or with some what's-to-come perplexities socially, politically, or even just personally, personally, let's press on past those emotions and let's anchor ourselves to who Christ Jesus is, that his heart is for us, especially in times like these. So how do we know that his heart is for us in times like these? We always, as the people of God, we always look back to look forward. Okay, if you're a note taker, don't miss that. We always look back to look forward. So I want to ask you a question before we begin our time. Have you found yourself wondering or even asking the question, when will things go back to normal? When will things go back to normal? As we look at our text in Isaiah this morning, let's do our best to see what the author is trying to get us to see about who God is, about God's character, about what he's doing, and how he loves and cares for his people. So if you would go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 63, Isaiah 63, that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. And as you turn there, I want to give you a little bit of context behind the book of Isaiah. 
Isaiah is a very messianic book. Some scholars even call it the fifth gospel. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and so many scholars throw in Isaiah because it speaks so deliberately, so clearly about the Messiah, Christ the King. Even though it was written thousands of years before God comes in the flesh in Christ Jesus, it speaks very clearly about him. We can't miss it, about his life, his suffering, his death, and all that he will accomplish for the people of God. The book of Isaiah dates back to about 740 BC, and it was written in the midst of invasions of other nations into Jerusalem, and also as they were captives and exiles in the Babylonian kingdom, and suffered greatly, awaiting to be delivered again and again by God. But make no mistake, make no mistake, that the suffering that was brought on to the people of God was brought on by God himself. We can't let God off the hook here. Yes, the people were sinners, and a lot of it was their own foolishness, but it was God's own sovereign hand that guided what was taking place in this time. In the, one of the most notable chapters in the book of Isaiah, other than Isaiah 53, chapter 6, Isaiah receives his call to prophetic ministry. I want to set the scene for you in Isaiah chapter 6. If you've spent any time in church, you might know the story of what happens in Isaiah chapter 6. There's this good king called King Uzziah who dies. He, he grows prideful after some time, and he dies in Isaiah the prophet. He is mourning the death of the king in the temple of God. And he is confronted by the holiness of God in Isaiah chapter 6. It says, he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And there was these angelic-like creatures, these seraphim flying above, crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah is confronted by the holiness of God. There, he receives his call to prophetic ministry. And I want to read for you in Isaiah chapter 6, just really quickly. Isaiah chapter 6, when he receives his call to ministry, says Isaiah's commission from the Lord, starting in verse 8. says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a tenebrith or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. It sounds a little bleak and a little hopeless. But in the midst of all this, God is reminding Isaiah that he is in control, that he is the sovereign God. 
and he does not waste anything. God is all that he needs, even when it looks hopeless. And remember, in this text, Isaiah is mourning the loss of the king, and God meets him in his mourning. So turn, if you would, to Isaiah 63. Isaiah chapter 63, verses 7 through 14. I'm going to read these in just a second. But we need to keep in mind that the book of Isaiah was not written in just one sitting. Some scholars believe that it was written over a 200-year period. Chapter 63, some scholars believe that it was written by the disciples of Isaiah who sat around him and followed him and listened to the words But we need to know that it is the divinely inspired words of God, that God is the author of Isaiah 63. And as we read the text, listen and observe the language you hear that sounds very Exodus-like. Could we stand while we read the word of God? Isaiah 63, verses 7 through 14. It says, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Verse 10. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemies and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert. They did not stumble, verse 14, like livestock that go down into the valley. The spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So take note that these few verses are making the reader, they're making us as we read, and those that would have been listening in that day, they make us look back to look at the present situation that they and we are in, and of course, to look forward to what is coming. If you have this, there's there's a little title above there, as, as it begins in verse 7, it says, The Lord's mercy recounted. And this was common among the people of God, that they would take time to look back and to remember God's faithfulness. So I want to stop here for just a minute and I want to ask you a few questions. I asked you earlier about things going back to normal. Do you, do you find yourself wondering, when are things going to go back to normal? When can I get together with my family again and my friends? When do I not have to wear these silly masks anymore? When do I not have to social distance anymore? I want things to go back to normal. 
want to ask you, people of God, have you taken time in the last few months, in the last few weeks, in the last few days to look back at the faithfulness of God, though tomorrow is uncertain? Have you longed more for normal lately than for God to get the glory during this season? So I want to ask you, because I want to be faithful to the word of God, and I know most of you don't know who I am, but I want to say this because I have to stand in account one day for how I taught and preached the word of God. I want to ask you this. If you've longed more for normal, has it become idolatry in your life? And if it has, I ask that you would lay it at the feet of Christ and say, I don't want to go back to normal. I want you to get the glory. I want you to get the glory. So let's break down these verses for just the next few minutes, and let's let the Word of God do what it needs to do in our lives. So keep in mind Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. Was it Jay that he read it for us at the beginning there? And I noticed that as he was closing it in, it it talks about God punishing the generations to come. And it's like, good morning. Let's get started with worship. The word of God tends to do that. So in verses 7 through 9 in Isaiah chapter 63, we see that God is, that the the writer here, the, the prophet is using this language And there's this Hebrew word here that encapsulates steadfast love or the loving kindness of God or the loyal love of God. It's this word called hesed. It's this Hebrew word called hesed. This is the steadfast love of the Lord. And this is covenantal language. Imagine my wife and I in Canyon, Texas, in August, August 9th of 2003, 17 years ago, make sure and get that right, we stood before an audience and she walked down the aisle wearing a white dress and I remember making a covenant with her before the people that day and my covenant was I do and her covenant to me was I do in riches and in sickness and in poverty I do. This is what God is saying here. He's using covenantal language. The steadfast love of the Lord is covenantal language. I want you to see this, church. That when God asks us to do something, he always does something first. I know that you guys have been walking through the book of Exodus. And when God gives the Ten Commandments to the people, he doesn't say, do these things and then I'll be your God. He says, I am the Lord your God who delivered you from the house of slavery. Now, do these things. That's the good news of the gospel. Let it wash over you this morning. That God is not coming to you first. Hey, you got to clean yourself up you got to do these things, mark these things off the checklist, and then I'll love you. And then I'll let you in. God's love is not a contract. It is a covenant that he makes with his people. He comes and he says, 
I met the demands that I had on you. I met them in Christ. Now do these things. Because I did them first. Now you do these things. This is the chesed of the Lord our God. Look at verse 8. Verse 8. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. At first glance, verse 8 seems like, it's, it seems almost like God is a little unsure if his people will stay faithful to him. God is not unsure of himself or what he does. He is not saying here that because of his own, he is saying here, excuse me, that because of his own faithfulness, he, they will be faithful. Let me say that again. He is saying here, because I am faithful, my people will be faithful. Because I give them the faith to believe. I open their eyes. I remove their hearts of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Like the book of Ezekiel tells us. God is not unsure of himself. And then verse 9, it carries the weight of God's mercy being remembered. God did the work of redeeming his people. And he will see it to completion. This, this continues to point them and us to what happened in the exodus of Egypt. Excuse me. And then look at verse 10. It says, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. This seems like in stark contrast to what's just being said. said God, God says, I'm faithful and my people will be faithful. And then verse 10 says, they rebelled against him. And he set his face against them. He became their enemy. We need to be reminded, in light of Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, we need to be reminded that God takes sin seriously. And this is something we've bought into in the, West, in, in the panhandle of Texas, is that my sins are not as big as some other people's. So here's what we do. We begin to compare distances. And God says, no, all sin is offensive to me because I am righteous and I am holy. All sin is offensive to me and the wicked will pay. The book of Psalms says that he sets his bow and it faces the wicked. God takes sin seriously. God is not to be trifled with. He is not to be mocked. The book of Hebrews says that he is a consuming fire. Our God is not to be mocked. But then in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah, when he is confronted by the holiness of God in that temple, God does not come to Isaiah and says, you're not holy. You, need, you can't be in my presence. What does he do? He meets Isaiah and he atones for his sin. How gracious is God that he would meet Isaiah in that moment. Isaiah is 
stunned by the holiness of God. And he says, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And what does God do? The angel brings a coal, touches his lips, and he says, your sins have been atoned for. In Exodus 34, at the beginning of verse 6, it does not say, the Lord, the Lord frustrated and angry or disappointed and despondent. But what does it say? Merciful and gracious. God is saying first and foremost about himself, I am merciful and gracious. Maybe this is all you need to hear this morning. Christian, look at me. Let me see your eyes for just a second. Maybe this is all that you need to hear. That if you are in Christ this morning, God is not disappointed with you. God is not frustrated with you. God is not aggravated by your presence. We have the hope of Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 tells us, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, the hope of the gospel is that he sees us as he sees his son. This is why we love Jesus so much. This is why we worship Jesus. He's worthy of all of our lives. That the father doesn't look at his people and say, they're so frustrating. But he says, look at my people. I love them. I am merciful and gracious. And though God takes sin seriously. How do we know that he takes sin seriously? We look back to the cross of Christ. Do you want to know how much God hates sin? Is that the murder of his own son. That Jesus would willingly lay down his life on that day. By the foreknowledge of the Father, according to the book of Acts, that he would willingly lay down his life for his people. That's how seriously God takes sin. That Jesus would absorb the wrath of God in our place. In my place, condemned he stood, and he sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Amen? And verse 10 continues. And God puts his feelings on display. He is grieved. His Holy Spirit is grieved. He turns to be their enemy. He fights against his own people. There are some real emotions taking place that God sets before us here. And then in verse 11, look at verse 11. There's some interesting phrasing here. It says, Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. And you think, is this speaking about God? Does God forget? Isn't God omnipotent? Doesn't he know all things? This would have really read this way. Then his people remembered the days of old. So the, the author here quickly changes gears and is talking about the people of God, that they look back to the faithfulness of God in the days of Moses. The language of the Exodus continues and actually gets it actually gets a little more obvious from here on. And then in verses 12 
through 14. We see that they experienced this great suffering, their exileness for God to get the glory. And you might be thinking, well, how cruel of God that his own people would be exiles or that his own people would suffer. Look at me, church. If the Son of God himself suffered, we will suffer. We will experience the loss of loved ones. We will get the diagnosis that we never thought was coming. We will get news that a pandemic has hit the United States. The people of God will suffer. But here's the hope, that we will not suffer forever. We will not suffer forever. Though my dad lay in that bed to be cared for by hospice nurses, his last breath that he took on earth was his first to take for the face of his maker. And in that moment, I'm sure my dad said, it was all worth it. It was all worth it for me to walk, literally walk from South America through central Mexico to come to school in San Antonio and to suffer all that I suffered to get the gospel to Borger, Texas. It was all worth it. It was all worth it. Verses 12 through 14 parallels for us Psalm 23, 3, where the, the psalmist tells us, He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. It doesn't say paths of easiness, but paths of righteousness for His name's sake. So I want to end our time with this. What in the world is God doing here? We may never know. We have glimpses of what we think he's doing. But the words of the prophet help us. In verse 14, at the very end, it says, So you led your people to make for yourself a what? A what, church? A glorious name. To make for yourself a glorious name. This is reality for them in that moment. We cannot romanticize this or see this through the eyes of Hollywood. There was a very real normal that they wanted to go back to. Just like we are longing for normal. God is saying, no, I'm here. I am all that you need. So I want to ask a question. What can we learn from this? What can we learn from Isaiah 63? Number one is that we are aliens. We are sojourners in this land. We hold all things with an open hand. I'm sure as badly as my mom want, wanted my dad to stay on this earth, there was nothing she could do from stopping death from coming. We hold all things with an open hand. Parents, look at me for just a moment. Are you holding your children with open hands? 
And as difficult as it would be saying, Lord, whatever you want with my kids, you do. I'm praying that some of your kids would come to you one day and say, Mom, Dad, I want to go be a missionary. I want to go overseas and, and, and proclaim the gospel to people who have never heard. Would you be able to open your hand and say, God, whatever you want with my kids? Or is it more important for your kids to go to an Ivy League school or for them to be successful in life, whatever that looks like? Secondly, God will often take out our legs to pry out of our hands what we hold so tightly. He will often take out our legs so that we will let go of what's in our hands. My dad often used to say this, that God will often kill you so that you can really live. God will often kill you so that you can really live. So the season of Advent helps us see this. Why Advent? The first Advent, just as promised, has happened. Jesus came in the flesh. The Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. He lived a very real life 2,000 years ago. He suffered under the hands of Pontius Pilate. And he died a very real death. And just as he promised, he rose victoriously from the grave on that day. Listen, this is the good news of the gospel. If you don't hear anything else, hear this, that Jesus came and lived in your place and in mine. We needed all of his life. Not only that, but we needed his death in our place. That the demands on us was to die. And Jesus comes and dies in place of his enemies. He dies in our place. And he doesn't stay dead. After three days, comes up out of the grave, defeating death. Cashing the check that he had written three days before. And he is alive. We worship a king who is alive. And he is active in our lives today. He ascends to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for us night and day. This is really good news, church. This is, the gospel is not just for those who have come into the church building for the first time. It is for you who have been Christians for years and years and years. The gospel carries us through. It is the good news of the gospel that carried my dad to his deathbed. We never move beyond the gospel. Never. Do you often look back to what Christ has done for you? I call this, do you re-gospel yourself? Do you remember what Christ has done, that he has lived a life perfectly in your place, died a death in your place, defeated death in your place? Do you often re-gospel yourself? Because church, we are in this in-between place, between the first and the second advent. The first advent where Jesus came as a humble baby, 
But make no mistake, church, that the second advent, everyone will know. I don't care what left behind series you've read. Jesus will split the sky and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Christ. Whether willingly or they just say, yep, it's true. He will come again to gather his people. Are we looking back to see God's faithfulness? And it helps us walk in faith. Are we only longing for future things? Are we only longing for the vaccine to take effect so that we can get back to normal? Let us do both, church. Let us look back to remember the faithfulness of God. And it helps inform the present, because we are hopeful of what's coming. This is the hope of Advent. This is the hope of Advent. This is the right now power of the gospel. This helps inform our daily living. Christ's heart is for us. He listens to us even in our complaints. He comes to us in his Holy Spirit. He sympathizes with us. He is not waiting to shame or belittle you because you want normal back. Instead, he stands and he said, I am all that you need. Even if normal never comes, I am all that you need. I want to end with Paul's words in Romans. If you would turn there, Romans chapter 11. going to start in verse 33. Romans 11, verse 33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Are we waiting during this Advent season with our palms in the air saying, Lord, you are all that I need. Nothing else can satisfy me like you. I wait for you. Your plan is perfect. When I end our time with just this plea from the pulpit, if you are in this place and you are apart from Christ, when I ask that you would repent of your sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how does that happen? The Spirit begins to draw you, gives you a new heart, gives you a new birth, gives you a new mind. He transforms your mind. If that is happening with you in this place, if you are feeling conviction of sin, turn from your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Please don't leave this place without speaking to a pastor, praying with a pastor. It is not the prayer that saves us, but it is God himself. 
And secondly, as the people of God, I ask that you would be encouraged. Be encouraged. First and foremost, the coronavirus is on a short sovereign leash. And it can only do what the sovereign hand of God has allowed. Thirdly, we have no idea what's going to happen in our nation in the next few weeks, in the next few months, in the next few years. But I ask as the people of God that we would not live in fear, but we would live hopeful that Christ the King is coming and he will not sit in Washington, D.C. He will reign forevermore. Let's pray. God, I am thankful. I felt your presence with me, Spirit. Jesus, I thank you that your words are true today. That you are faithful and true. You are just. And God, I ask that if there is someone in this room who finds himself apart from you, that you would save, that you would give a new heart in this moment, you would give a new birth, you would give a new mind, that they would feel the conviction of sin and they would run from their sin and run into your arms. God, give the faith to believe. God, endearing this Advent season, give us hope. Give hope to the hopeless. Give restoration to the broken. Give peace to those who are suffering. For your grace is sufficient for us. For many of us, we find ourselves at a crossroads. But we know that you are not confused. You are not set back by anything that's taking place. You do not sit in the heavens and wring your hands. But you sit firmly established on your throne. So God, when we long for normal, would we like Job place our hands over our mouth and say nothing can thwart your plan? Your plan is perfect. God, come and minister to us now as we sing. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.